I'll be reading from Romans 7, verses 14 through 20. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not do what I do not want to do. It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. The infirm Caden Chacon, that's not an easy passage to read, amen? And uh, we're not happy about what the passage says necessarily, but we are uh, thankful. I, uh, I, I just don't want to forget this, so forgive me for taking a quick break from the sermon. Uh, today is Don and Yvonne Glan's anniversary. Can y'all stand please back where you are? Uh, this is a great witness to steadfast love and caring for each other, and we're really thankful for them. I have a feeling every time that Don thinks that he's about to do the bad thing that he didn't really want to do, Yvonne grabs him and says, no, you're not. <laughs> I just my guess. I don't know how that exactly works. I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want. That I keep on doing. The words from Romans chapter 7, in fact, the entire chapter, it's one of the longer chapters, one of the harder chapters to work our way through. To a certain extent, these words haunt us. We hear them. They ring in our ears. We probably can see ourselves in a situation where we express these same sort of things. I want to do this good. I want to be kinder. I want to be more gentle in my life. I want to stand for God's gospel. Amen? And just so often I find myself, when I get in that moment, things turn in a way that I don't intend for them to turn. I can remember as a teenager, headed to school, thinking, I'm going to get this right today. I'm not going to laugh at any of their dirty jokes. I'm going to walk away when the conversation becomes, and then you just kind of get sucked in, don't you? And we might say part of that was peer pressure. And we're supposed to grow out of that. Isn't it interesting, the older we get, sometimes the more we realize we're not as much grown out of that as possible. But I want to affirm to you, and it is my goal in this sermon today, maybe not to give you a one, two, three, go do these things, but it is my goal today to try and frame chapter 7 the way that I believe Paul intended for you to hear it. Not as words that haunt us, but as a statement, as the sermon topic says, of the before picture, before we get to the after picture. Now I want to particularly confess to you, I am an old-fashioned kind of guy. Social media got started long after I was kind of set in my ways, and every once in a while I'll kind of step in that foray. And mostly what I do is I find somebody who's done something really neat and I just forward it, or I do a lot of saying thank you to people like Sandy, who actually makes me good looking, make me look good looking, and she'll post something about the church service, and I'll just say thank you, gives a thumbs up, and things like that. So I'm really bad at this. And as bad as I am of the idea, before I start a project, you know this, don't you? You start a project at the house, right? You're going to fix something up. 
to really do it right in this day and time, what have you got to stop? Before you start doing anything, what have you got to stop and do? You have to take a picture. You have to take the before picture, right? This is what my daughter's about to do. We are on the ticking clock for a new grandbaby being born on Friday. Somebody say hallelujah. We're, we're excited about this. But, but make no mistakes, there's going to be a before picture and there's going to be a all the after picture. But there's some folks that have really perfected the art of the before and the after. I probably don't need to introduce them to you, although I already show a little bit of my old-fashionedness because I know they're not the hippest thing anymore, but they're the ones that I know. You know Chip and Joanna Gaines from Waco, Texas. Everybody says, I didn't even know Waco, Texas existed before I met Chip and Joanna Gaines. And all the people who used to live in Waco before Chip and Joanna do not appreciate that their property taxes have increased twofold since Chip and Joanna and Fixer Upper went on to it. But they have perfected the art. Yes, they have perfected the art of the before and the after. I want to affirm to you there's a book that, that they've written together, and, and in, enjoy reading it. It's a, it's a great reflection on what it is to give a life, that you're going to do what God has gifted you to do in a way that honors God, in a way that blesses people. Uh, these are God-fearing people, and, and their book is not just a tale of how Fixer Upper came to be. And by the way, if you kind of need... To read something that kind of inspires you, yes, I can build small and go to something bigger. It's a great book for that, but it's also a great book in reflecting on how Christian faith shapes and changes us, and so I recommend it to you. But what is that vehicle, that vehicle where they have, that they have perfected about the power and the after? You know that vehicle, don't you? The big reveal, right? And, and apparently HGTV knows about this as well because they do about five commercials. They lead you up to it and then they go to commercial. And then they go backwards and lead you up to it again and they go to commercial. And then they go back again and then they do one more kind of, and here we are and stay tuned. And then they'll run about five commercials and then we finally get to it. And you know the big reveal because it's not just about what the house looked like before and what it they pull the two screens apart and you get to see what it looks like afterward but what's the really big part of the process watching the lady cry right and that I think they may do auditions when you know they say now what house project do you want to do and say now we want to see you act surprised and excited about something and if you don't just I remember there one lady started beating on her husband's arm. I thought, good night, woman. <laughs> I'd hate to see you angry. But they have perfected that idea. For us, our baptism with Christ is the big reveal. Before Paul can move on with the after picture, and, and I want to go on and just ask your forgiveness. Doing chapter 7 and chapter 8 in one sermon was more than I could bite off and chew and do it well. But as you read, and you've got your Bibles open to chapter 7, you're going to be able this week to read chapter 7 and then go to the big reveal in chapter 8. Because our baptism in Christ, which Paul refers to directly in chapter 6, and says we are joining Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. Amen? And we do that, that faithful step of joining Him is expressed in the waters of baptism. The baptism is our big reveal. Where we move from being the old person that is dead in sin to the new person that is alive in the spirit. Amen? And so it is. And I, you know, just have to paint a quick picture for you. 
Garrett came up out of those waters, and it was really cool to see his smile, especially cool to see his smile when we both realized that he went under with his glasses on. <laughs> Garrett, did we need to redeem the glasses? Is that what we <laughs> needed to do? I'm not sure exactly what it was. But, but did you see the heavens open? Did you hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant? Did you hear God say, this is my child whom I love? Did you hear him say that? If you didn't hear him, it's because he has to say that extra loud. Because the heavens, like those that couple that sits in front of the big reveal, the heavens are opening up and wow, I can't believe it. And there are people crying. There are relatives of yours that went on before you. Who, who are already waiting for you to come, and they're celebrating. Yeah! He was part of the family, now he's part of the family. And God has to say, this is my child whom I love, extra loud, because the chorus of sound is going on. Amen and amen? The central question that Paul is trying to ask in chapter 7 is summarized like this. Is the law sin? Now, we've talked about the different ways that law uh, can be defined, but I think particularly we have to look here not only at the idea of law-keeping, okay, which has been one of the definitions when Paul talks about the law, that is to say that we think we can make ourselves righteous because we follow all the laws, but here we particularly point towards the law being a summary for the entire gift of the Old Testament. And that is to say, particularly, we could go to the Ten Commandments. And we had people that saw this revelation from God, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point a little bit more to this a little bit later, but they saw that as, as this is the answer to all the questions for the Pharisees. This is the answer. In fact, this is so much the answer, we're going to take what it says and begin to... Uh, exegete it and explain it in so many ways that you don't even lift a finger without knowing whether that is in keeping with the law or against the law. The Pharisees would walk down the street. A wealthy Pharisee would have servants to go before him to push people out of the way for fear that somehow or another they would break one of the commandments because of the, just the regular people that they were bumping into on a constant basis. The idea of the gift of God of his word, the gift of God of the revelation of who he is and the way that that is expressed in the commandments that he gives and the calling that he has on Israel's life particularly, but understand that those callings are for all mankind who would choose to seek God. And as Paul has made the powerful argument that we have gone over week after week, shall I go on sinning so that grace may occur? may increase? This is almost the antiphonal question. So if it's not about keeping the law, then is law itself sin? He asked this question with the perspective of, I'm going to summarize three groups that he is kind of speaking to, if I can, very quickly. First of all, a group that asks, is the law sin? Since you're pointing to something new, since you say that the law is the before picture, since you're pointing us to something new, there's a group of people that we might call the Jews. 
In reality, these aren't just people who were born into the Jewish faith or circumcised on the eighth day as a Jew, but these would be the same, also people who had chosen to follow the law, who had found the law, they would be called God-fearers or possibly even proselytes, who would follow the law of God and saw that as the way of pleasing God. These Jews, will call them, who still cling to the law or, again, law-keeping as a path to righteousness. He's speaking to them as he did earlier, as he did in chapter 3, and saying, yes, you have the law, and yes, the, Lord, the law is intended to be a revelation of who God is, but have you yet discovered that the more the law points towards what God wants us to do, the more we realize that we can't live up to who God is all by ourselves. Has anybody ever been in that boat? Has anybody ever been in that boat where you, where you somehow or another have developed the idea that to, to be God's person, to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength is about digging into the Bible so that I can find one more rule that I can try to implement in my life, but really, you know what it turns into more, than, more times than not? It becomes one more rule that I'm going to point at you and say, why aren't you, why aren't you, why aren't you, why aren't you? Because the realization is... The more I stack up rules to live by, the more I can't complete the rules. Amen? And there were a group of people who, even though they had responded to the gospel of Jesus, of course, I know that there are Jews who are resisting the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. And I don't think Paul is talking to those people at this point. He's talking to them earlier in the book, particularly chapter 4. He's going to talk to them again in chapters 9, 10, and 11. But right here, he's talking to people, whether they were born a Jew and now they've realized that Jesus is the Messiah and they've been baptized into him and a new life in him, or again, those people who had discovered the law as a, as a new focus for their life and they wanted to say, I can live it all just right, I'm just going to add Jesus to it. They are some of the ones who would be constantly accusing Paul Paul, the more you preach this grace, the more you're giving people permission to sin. And so that is one of the groups that thinks that they can achieve the righteousness of God that's being revealed by law-keeping. There's a second group that he's talking to. This isn't just a communication to Jews. This is a communication to educated Greeks. Educated Greeks who maybe had become proselytes or God-fearers, but there were oftentimes educated Greeks who came into the church because they Paul, heard Paul's preaching. Paul goes to, uh, goes to Athens and speaks on Mars Hill and speaks in such a, to, the, to the ultimate intelligentsia, the, the educated group. And there were people who responded to that message. The educated Greeks were a different kind of lot than us. For the American way of life, and I don't know that when we, when we talk about the way that America has influenced the whole globe, I think in some ways it's the way that America has made chasing after dollars and financial success the purpose of life. I don't know if you see that on a regular basis, but I sure do. The fact that it wasn't enough just to have a news channel that pretty quickly you realized you needed a news channel that didn't do anything but talk about business and the stock market. And what are you doing with your money? 
when we start looking at all that spam email that comes into our inbox, I can guarantee you a whole lot of that is connected to, don't you want more money? Of course, the idea is what we've bought into, the idea that if I have more money, then I'll be happier. I won't have to worry about as many things. You need to understand that in, in Paul's day and time, the pursuit of money was not the great be-all, end-all. Now, make no mistakes. You had a society that was very divided. You had people who were established and had family money and property. And, and they, for the most part, weren't going to lose that. You also had a group of people who were, uh, lived on the other end of that, very little middle class. People who worked basically one one meal to the next meal, or possibly we could look at it more as one season to the next season. One season of plenty to the next season of plenty. And so I realize that I'm not necessarily talking about the Greek who lived in that, in that lower socioeconomic, socioeconomic area. But for an educated Greek person, and again, what's changed in our society is the that those who have an education and those who are no longer living hand to mouth, one pro prosperous season to the next prosperous season, it seems that what we've made the focus of the development of our life, the higher life, the greater calling, is how can I make a little bit more money? For these people, that idea of a higher and greater life was about the idea of finding meaning by harnessing something they called the passions. They saw themselves as wanting to live a life that was more filled with something they would call spiritual kinds of things. That is to say, things that are of the mind and its purity of thought, the heart and its purity. But instead, they recognized over and over again that there were these things that they called the passions, that they connected with the lusts of the flesh and said, I can't get away from those. I've got to find a way to meditate myself. I've got to find a way to read philosophy such that I put that behind me. And what's interesting is there was a prophet named Isaiah, and his writings became very popular from about 600 years before Jesus and continued in popularity until this time. There were people who read Isaiah that had no care for the rest of the Bible, but they saw in Isaiah the idea that there was some way to live a higher and better life. To leave behind the violence of this world. To leave behind the prospect simply that the powerful will always get their way. But there will be a day when the meek will shine. For these people, the Old Testament held out a light in a beacon to say, Wow, there's a group of people who've put their lusts and passions behind them. Let's learn more about them. They didn't necessarily say, I want to learn about their God, because they simply saw it as one philosophy to be compared to a Platonic or Aristotelian philosophy. It became a goal in life to find this way to harness the passions. And yet, Paul, who not only was educated as a Jew with the law of God, but he was educated in Greek thought and philosophy. And he knew these people that had said, let's put those passions to rest. And what he knew about them is that the harder you tried, the harder it became when all you did was fight the fight with the idea that your brain can overcome what your body was doing. A 
third group that he's speaking to is the group that kind of spoke this larger idea. And again, this is a very Hellenistic kind of thought, that we can separate the sinful body from the spiritual mind. That somehow or another, just because the body does things that, that head towards sin, I can keep my mind pure. And by the way, this is one of the ways that the Greek philosophy would say, you don't have to worry about the passions because the passions are just going to do their thing. Just make your mind as pure as possible. And Paul confronts this and said, when sin enters the body, it sinner, sin enters into the whole of us. Amen? And so it is that Paul speaks into this group of people. And he says to them what they already know. Again, the question comes to the forefront. So is the law sin? And just like his answer to the primary objection, shall we go on sinning, Paul's answer to this objection is by no means or absolutely not. Or however it is that you say absolutely no way whatsoever, however you express that in your vernacular, I simply would tell you that the the Greek here, Paul's probably saying it more intensely than you are. He wants to say that that can't even exist in the same realm with truth. With that background, I want to read from chapter 7 before the passage, the central passage that you're probably most familiar with that Caden read and then a few verses after it. I'm reading from the message and I have to admit when you, when you stack up the number of words, Eugene Peterson is actually adding lots of words. But I think the way he adds these works, words up help us point and see those opponents that Paul is addressing from that question, but also maybe see how this is not intended to be a passion that haunts us, but is merely the painting of a picture of what was before or what existed without what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Read with me, starting in verse 4. So my friends, this is something like what has taken place with you. When Christ died, he took that entire rule-dominated way of life down with him and left it in the tomb, leaving you free, and again he's referring to last week's passage, to marry God, a resurrection life and bear offspring of faith for God. For as long as we lived in that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could away, could get away with, sin was calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in. And this has made us all the more rebellious. In the end, all we had to show for it was miscarriage and stillbirths. It would never produce a new life. But now that we're no longer shackled to that dominating mate of sin and out from under all those oppressive regulations and fine print, we're free to live a new life in the freedom of God. Somebody say amen. But I hear you say, if the law code was a, as bad as all that, it's no better than sin itself. That's certainly not true. The law code has a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behavior would mostly be guesswork. Apart from the succinct surgical command, you shall not covet, I could have dressed covetousness up to look like a virtue and ruined my life with it. Don't you remember how it was? I do. 
perfectly well. The lock code started out as an excellent piece of work. What happened was, though, was that sin found a way to pervert the command into a temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to seduce me. Without all the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and lifeless. And I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got its hand on the law code and decked itself out in all that finery, I was fooled and I fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, throwing me headlong. So sin was plenty alive and I was stone dead. But the law code itself is God's good and common sense, each command, saying, and holy counsel. I can already hear your next question. Does that mean I can't even trust what is good? That is the law? Is good just as dangerous as evil? No, again. Sin simply did not did what sin is so famous for doing. Using the good as cover to tempt me. To do what would finally destroy me. By hiding within God's good commandment, sin did far more mischief than it could have ever accomplished on its own. I'm going to skip down to verse 21. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin's there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question and the response? Can you say these words with me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For Paul, if I could summarize the entire chapter, he would say to us, The law is not the problem. What is the problem? Sin. The law is not the problem. But in the same breath, he has to say, the law is also not the answer. For Paul, he uses this this rhetoric of the first person. It's a way of putting himself in there. And I think sometimes we've confused this as Paul, the man filled with the Spirit, the apostle who met Jesus on the road to Damascus, was baptized and the Spirit took him and made him into this great apostle. We somehow or another take that person who's writing Romans and say, he still must be struggling with sin being alive in him. But the truth is that this is a rhetorical element. And the idea that he puts himself in the shoes of his readers, or at least in the shoes of his opponents. And so the first person is about saying, I identify with you. It's just like the lady on the commercial who steps up and says, look at all my dirty laundry until I discovered Tide or whatever brand that you like. Yes, she really doesn't have any dirty laundry, and you can kind of tell by the way she looks on the commercial. But she wants you to identify with her. Paul wants us to identify with him. His summation is, again, that the law is not the problem, but neither is the law the answer. 
the answer that Paul will reveal is that sin must be put to death. And that is not something we can accomplish on our own. We need God through Christ to accomplish that death. And that in putting sin to death, we need God to also bring us to new life. Amen? We celebrate God's good news. The good news that the law is not the answer for us. Amen? The answer for us is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will take the law and make it something that we can respond to. He will take the word of God, particularly the Old Testament, and fill it in with his light and say, I need you to understand who God is. It's interesting to me that Jesus, when Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment? It's not don't, 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 don't. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I heard somebody say one time, if we would sort of focus more on doing the things that Jesus told us to do, oftentimes the don't would take care of themselves. The things that break the world are about the things that we say, I'm not going to love the Lord with all my heart. I'm going to put myself in the center of the picture. I'm going to put my own pleasures, desires, and power in the center of the picture. Whereas when we put loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, we begin to repair the brokenness of the world. And if... Just like Jesus said, if we take and recognize that loving God means that I want to love my neighbor, it's interesting how murder kind of goes away, how theft kind of goes away, how the things that we do in our marriages to break them go away because we want to love that person as God loves them, not as an object to meet our needs. Jesus brought life even to the Old Testament because it would then inform us, not rules to keep, but inform us of the God who sent Jesus to save us. Amen? Our passage closes with this statement. Who will rescue me from sin? I would like to think that that question only occurs to people who have not given their life to Christ in baptism, but in my 58 years, I've discovered that sometimes I have to ask that question. Who will rescue me from what continues to entangle me? And the answer always is. The answer is never about how good I can be. The answer is always about how good God is and how faithful Jesus is. That is how we are rescued from sin. If there is anything that you need to do to respond to that good news, that message that you're not going to ever get it done by yourself, but you will absolutely win the battle with Jesus on your side, if we can help you in any of that process, we would ask you to, to come forward during this song, to seek out friends in this assembly who you could speak to. We would invite you to respond with a message on 979-217-3300. If you want to send that question out to us, I guarantee you somebody will respond. We want to enter into that conversation with you. But most of all, what we want to do 
is point you to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been stuck in that place where a friend asks you, I, I guess all this stuff is wrong with me, and, and you, you're, you're racking your brain. What's the right answer? What's the right answer? Say this, something like this. I can't unravel all of this, but I know that my life has changed because I've asked Jesus into my life. Now, I don't know how that helps you particularly, but I can guarantee you the answer we'll finally come to is Jesus. Do you need Jesus to answer those ultimate questions, particularly the second question? Who will rescue me from sin? Who will rescue our world from brokenness? And the answer over and over and over again is Jesus. Won't you stand as we sing?